Yo, what is going on everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Boom Boom Performance Podcast. Today is a Friday Q&A. And yes, I just rhymed that. Not on purpose though. But I'm pumped because this Q&A is literally jam-packed with some of the dopest questions we've had in a while. I don't know what happened, but we had some great content on this one. And I felt like I was just getting super hyped while I was answering them. So we're going to cover a lot of stuff on like the best tactics for uh, metabolic conditioning, how to train with nothing but a band and body weight for in 20 to 30 minutes or less. So like really quick home workouts that are actually effective. We're going to talk about um, adrenal fatigue and how to get out of that. We're going to talk about having a coach and the benefits of that. We're going to talk about how I used to only eat 500 calories when I first started this shit. We get into a lot of cool stuff, and I'm super pumped for you guys to listen to it and learn. So before we get into the Q&A, I want to give a quick shout-out to my sponsor, Reebok One. If you guys want a killer discount on Reebok gear for the gym, which I highly recommend because I am loving it, Click the link in the show notes or visit ReebokOne.com slash boom boom. You will be joined into the Reebok One movement, which is specifically for trainers and people in the fitness community. It's a really good place to be. And then real quick before we start, I want to just give a shout out to everybody who gave five-star ratings and reviews the last couple weeks. I really appreciate it and I love reading those reviews. So for anybody who hasn't, please go to iTunes, go to the search bar, type in the Boom Boom Performance Podcast, and please leave me a five-star rating and review. The more of those I get, the higher I can move up, the more time and money I can invest into this podcast to, to deliver free content to you, and then the better guests I can get, which we've had some killer guests on the show lately. Um, we just had the hormonal specialist on there, which was awesome. In the next couple weeks, I have some huge guests that are super pumped to, uh, to bring on. I'm not going to spoil it, but just know that there is some dope people coming on the podcast. So, Anyway, go leave me a five-star rating and review. I would love and appreciate it. And without further ado, let's get on to the Q&A. All right, now let's get right into the question. So our first question today comes from Amy Smith. How does alcohol affect your training? I like to enjoy two to three light beers slash glasses of wine almost every night. Is that doing? Is that undoing all my lifting slash training? Also, how do you calculate alcohol into your macros? Okay, so this is a loaded question. Um, alcohol affects your your training in many ways. At the end of the day, like we have to remember that alcohol is a big stressor and it's it's a toxin. Essentially, like when you enter, when you intake alcohol. Your body looks at it like a toxic chemical. It looks to do everything it can to get rid of it, to remove it immediately. Um, So essentially your body starts fighting this. Now, that's going to cause everything else to shut down. So when we take in alcohol, this process of lipolysis, which is fat loss, the process of rebuilding muscle tissue, the processes that are involved in growth hormone and testosterone and all these things kind of stop. They slow down and your body focuses on one task and that's get rid of the alcohol. So essentially the way it affects your training is it hormonally stops a lot of processes that are going on that are going to help you recover faster, perform better, burn more fat, metabolize things faster, so on and so forth because all it's trying to do is get rid of alcohol. It's trying to metabolize the alcohol that you've ingested um, and get rid of it essentially. So it's a lot of work to do. Um, So... Plain and simple, it's not going to help your performance that much. Now, they've actually done some studies that show like short-term, it actually doesn't do much to your specific workout. They actually showed some guys who were like 
doing pretty well in their training the next day following alcohol, but it depends on the type of alcohol. So what they suggested is I believe the more pure the alcohol is, the less of effect it has on your performance. Meaning if you're drinking as gross as it sounds like 151 or vodka, you're probably better off because it's almost pure alcohol versus beer, which has hops and and different sugars and wheat and alcohol and all these different ingredients. Wine is the same way. Um, And you have to drink more of it to get a higher percentage of alcohol, right? Like I can take one shot of pure alcohol and it's going to do me just as much as far as getting drunk as drinking multiple beers. And when we have multiple beers, it's it's more taxing on the body. So now this is just what the research is starting to show because essentially like they just started doing this. Another thing to remember though is alcohol can pause what's called muscle protein synthesis. So as we know, when we ingest protein, muscle protein synthesis starts going on. When we train, muscle protein synthesis starts going on. And all muscle protein synthesis is, is taking protein and utilizing it like it's meant to be utilized. So it's essentially using protein to rebuild tissues, to recover our body, to build more muscle. Like muscle protein synthesis is a pretty important topic or concept. It's a really smart theory and we need to focus on enhancing it. That's why I always recommend having protein in every meal, eating four to five meals a day, blah, 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 so on and so forth. But essentially when we ingest alcohol, they've shown that it kind of can put a halt on muscle protein synthesis, which may not have a direct effect on today's training session or tomorrow's training session, but in the long term, it will slow down recovery. And slowing down recovery is what's going to slow down performance in the long run. It's going to slow down results in the long run, so on and so forth. So Really, really important key to think about is alcohol's effect on muscle protein synthesis. Alcohol also has a pretty big effect on testosterone. So for guys, it's going to kill your testosterone if you're drinking consistently. Um, it's, it's probably one of the reasons why a lot of people who drink too much have like a beer belly or love handles or that spare tire look because your cortisol is going through the roof, your testosterone is dropping, and both of those things happening hormonally can cause more abdominal fat, low belly fat. Um, so for guys, it's really, really important to have your testosterone high. That's going to help obviously sex drive and libido. It's going to help build more muscle. It's going to help perform. It's going to help confidence and it's going to help focus. It's going to help clarity, fat loss, help a lot of things. So my general recommendation with people because of this is like, like Amy Smith said, she likes to enjoy two to three light beers or glass, a glass of wine almost every night. Is that undoing my lifting slash training? I don't think anything can undo what you've done, right? So I don't think that drinking alcohol is going to remove the progress you made in the gym today. It's not going to like make that not matter at all because it's still relative and it's still important that you're in the gym. But I do believe that it's going to have a negative impact on the longevity side of things. And what I mean by that is simply if you ingest alcohol, you are not recovering, which means tomorrow's session is not going to be as good as it could be. Same with the day after and the day after and in the long run, you might not build as much muscle, might not build as much strength and you're probably not going to lose as much fat. Not to mention you're probably consuming extra calories and going over your calorie limit because of alcohol Um, and your body can't process the nutrients you're, you're trying to absorb with too much alcohol in its system. So you might not be undoing what you've already done, but I can guarantee that you are limiting the amount that you can do meaning you're not going to be doing as much. You're not going to be getting as much out of your training sessions in the future every time you drink. So my recommendation to people is just cut it back. Like somebody who's drinking every single night, I don't expect them to go to one time a week, but that's the ultimate goal, right? If you're drinking every night, let's try to cut that down to twice a week. Then after that, maybe once a week. And I personally recommend that everybody, if unless you don't want to drink at all, which I understand, but I don't think everybody should restrict alcohol completely. 
I think it's important to have a night once a week where you, you have some wine. Like I know I have my wine night. I know I have date night with my fiance and, and we like to drink. Well, I like to drink. She's eight months pregnant. But the point is we like to have a glass of wine with dinner and, and, and I'll enjoy that. But what it does is it allows me to kind of calm down. So I believe that there's a sympathetic nervous system release and there's a parasympathetic nervous system increase over the course of time when you're drinking just from this pure stress relief state just from relieving stress having some fun loosening up winding down that to me is is important i think it's recommended right it's the same thing with like smoking weed i don't condone it but if people are going to smoke weed and it allows them to de-stress and chill out once a week i think i don't think it's going to kill your results even though it has a testosterone limiting effect because in the long run, you're relieving stress. So for me, wine does that. Um, like I said, I don't condone weed. But at the end of the day, like if you're taking a night once a week to, to relieve stress, I think that's important. Now, as far as uh, how do you calculate it into your macros, alcohol is a completely different ma- macro. So ethanol is essentially what alcohol is, right? So if you look at carbs, carbs are glucose or sugar, right? Um, well, alcohol is actually ethanol. And ethanol has seven calories per gram, whereas Carbs and protein have four calories per gram. Fat has nine calories per gram. So it's a completely different ballgame. So trying to calculate it in is very difficult. And add to that, my fitness pal doesn't do a great job of calculating things because they're more focused on food. So what I recommend is looking at calories those days. So on days that you are tracking alcohol into your macros, hit your protein on the dot and try to hit your calories pretty close within 50 to 100 calories. Then just let your carbs and fats be wherever they need to be, which will be lower in order to keep your calories on point, right? Because a lot of times you'll add uh, alcohol in and they don't factor in the seven calories per gram. So you see 300 calories from um, uh, 300 calories from wine, let's say, but there's no ethanol in your macro breakdown on MyFitnessPal, right? Like there's protein, fats, and carbs and fiber and sugar and things like that. There's no ethanol. There's no alcohol section. So what I would do is remove fats and carbs to just make enough room in your calorie limit to be able to eat or I mean, sorry, drink some of that alcohol and enjoy it. Just keep it in your calories. And they've done studies on this too. If you have a little bit of uh, alcohol and you keep it within your calories, you're really not going to do much fat loss gaining or, or ruin your results long term. Like I said, it can have a negative effect on hormones and performance, but if you have alcohol once a week and you fit it in your macros, even twice a week, it's not going to kill you, but it's its own macro. So you need to just fit it in your calories. I personally recommend if you can to, to with track or withdraw or take away fat as a macro in order to fit in alcohol. And the reason being is because alcohol is processed and metabolized similarly to fat during the metabolic process, right? Um, and therefore it's a good substitute on top of that, you can easily take away fats and and cut out a lot of calories. It's easy to do that. And proteins and vegetables and with high fibers are probably the most satiating things we can eat. So for my clients, I usually recommend have protein every meal, lean protein source that's low fat, make sure you're getting tons of veggies that day, and then fill uh, what you can up with carbs because carbs are going to honestly soak up the alcohol so you don't get too drunk. But also it's going to keep you satiated having all this fiber and all this protein so you don't feel like you're cutting out a ton of calories for alcohol. It kind of feels the same. Now with the fat gone, your body can metabolize the alcohol a little bit easier and just get it done. So that's my recommendation when it comes to to drinking, how often you should drink and, and how to fit it in your macros. All right, let me take a quick sip of the coffee. I think I am obsessed with coffee. 
Yo, if anybody listening to this is in the forum, which a lot of you guys are, and if you're not, go jump in the forum. There's a link in the show notes. The BBP Podcast Forum. I almost stuttered because I was going to say the Boom Boom Performance Podcast Forum. But honestly, that was just way too fucking long for me to put on the Facebook thing. That's why it's the BBP. But go add yourself in there. And I want to hear everybody's opinion on what their favorite way to drink coffee is. Like what – how do you drink your coffee? And if you have good recommendations, I'm looking for a really good organic ground coffee. It's hard to find like the best ground coffee that's organic. But I need organic coffee. It tastes better and it's just way better for you. All right, let's go to the next question. This question comes from Marcus Rohrig. Rohrig. I think he's from, he's got to be from Europe, but by the way, I'm looking at it and I'm sorry if I screwed this up completely, Marcus, but it reminds me of the way it's spelt R O H R I G with like the two little dots over the O, reminds me of Lord of the Rings, the Rohan. Like, I'm a huge Lord of the Rings fan and this just, it, it popped in my mind. Greatest series of all time. Thoughts on metabolic flexibility through adjusting your macros on your activity level and or changing between different – between fasted – I'm sorry. Thoughts on metabolic flexibility through adjusting your macros on your activity level and or changing between different fasted and feasted training. Okay. So uh, I think that metabolic – I think a couple things like – Metabolic flexibility, for anybody who doesn't know, is essentially the ability for your body to change its fuel sources. So maybe today I'm, I'm on a high-carb diet, tomorrow I'm on a high-fat diet, right? And I kind of go back and forth between those two according to my activity level, according to what I want to do. Now, there's people out there who just alternate it every few days because they want their body to adapt and be able to essentially switch back and forth, with it, which I think is smart. I think the concept of metabolic flexibility makes sense. I think that if... I think it would be optimal as can be to be able to switch back and forth because in an ideal world, you're able to utilize whatever you're taking in and and use it as fuel and performance, right? But I also think that your body is not going to run as efficiently as it can when it comes to recovery, performance, hormonally, everything like that because I do believe, and there's no studies to prove this, uh, but there's also no studies to really prove much about metabolic flexibility that I'm aware of. But I do believe that when your body gets used to the fuel you're giving it, it becomes more optimal. It learns how to utilize it better for its hormones, for its uh, recovery, for tissue rebuilding, for uh, focus, for clarity. I think that when we're constantly switching, it can confuse the body and you're never going to be tapping into your full potential. I mean, it's like keto, right? When you go keto, there's a good one, two, three weeks. Some people even go up to like six weeks of like the keto flu where you just feel like shit. You have this kind of sick feeling and it's because your body's not used to using, producing ketones and then using ketones as fuel. Uh, because it's used to glucose. So I think if you constantly are switching back and forth, I think your body's going to be kind of in this wiggle room of like not fully tapping into anything. Now, I do believe that maybe it's possible long term if you constantly go through metabolic flexibility. Um, But when you consider like in my mind, the thing I want to leave that with is uh, the majority of my clients do much better when I have them on a specific style of macronutrients. Typically, I prefer higher carb diets. I find that they work better, especially for people who are training hard in the gym. Um, for people who train less, I do think high-fat diets can work. And I think for sedentary people or people with autoimmune diseases, I think high-fat diets can work great. Um, it's just not my population. A lot of them, my clients are training. I do have some on higher-fat diets because they're more sedentary, but the majority of my clients are training. So I'm going to like a high-carb diet. But I think that metabolic flexibility based on your activity level um, is really just a, a really sciencey, smart tr- way of trying to say like carb cycling, right? 
today I'm training hard. I'm a high intensity strength training day. I'm going to eat more carbs. Tomorrow it's a low intensity cardio day. I'm going to eat low carb, high fat. It's really just carb cycling. I personally believe that you should have steady carbs throughout the whole entire week and then you should have one refeed day, if not two. Um, I do not like carb cycling much unless it allows you to adhere better. They've done studies on this and the only reason that carb cycling can benefit you more is if you can adhere to the diet long-term longer. There's no short-term benefit to carb cycling. The only benefit is, is if I know I have a high-carb day today and I'm going to be a little bit hungry and I get to eat ice cream or whatever it may be, that's perfect because I can I can be more disciplined tomorrow and have low carbs in order to make do, right? And if that allows you to adhere better, then great, and I think it will work. But otherwise, there's no real benefit. What I find is that everybody, and this is what science would prove, is everybody should have linear calories throughout the week. You should have one or two refeed days, mainly for sanity, uh, but also for hormonal regeneration, resynthesis, um, keep just holding on to hormonal processes for longer, right? Especially if you have hormonal issues, I would actually suggest two refeed days back to back. And I have a lot of clients who I do that with and they see outstanding results because 24 hours isn't really long enough to enhance a huge change or let your hormones readapt um, fully. So, but that's besides the point here. The reason I think this is smart is because we have to remember that carbs Carbs are glucose. Glucose gets stored as glycogen in our muscle cells, in our body, in in everything, and that's what we utilize for fuel when we train. Glucose, carbohydrates, are stored and then utilized as glycogen 24 to 36 hours of things, maybe even 48 hours later, and it's extremely hard to completely deplete your body of glycogen, and what I mean by that is you would literally have to do like a full two-hour workout of a bunch of 20-rep activities, like barbell bench, 20 reps, four sets. Squats, 20 to 25 reps, four sets. Deadlifts, 20 reps. Sled work that's super lactic acid base at the end. Or straight co- CrossFit competition where you're like doing uh, the open or you're going to regionals where you're working and working and working. Um, that's the only way. So 90% or more of people are not fully depleting their glycogen. Therefore, carb cycling is not as big of a deal because you might actually have more benefit having a higher carb day the day before your heavy training day versus the day of, even though you're going to deplete some of that glycogen during your training session. So in my opinion, metabolic flexibility just doesn't work as well as it's like taught up to be. I think it's a really cool idea and a really cool like philosophy. I think we all would want to do that. Like, right, like if we look at CrossFit, it's like eight different modalities in one and that's why it's so badass and that's why I think it's so cool to be able to master that because you're good at endurance, you're good at hypertrophy, you're good at power, you're good at strength. It makes sense, right? And some people can train their body to do that, but it takes a long time. And usually you're good in one area and not the rest. It's very hard to be good at them all. I think the same way with metabolic flexibility. It's very hard for your body to adapt and be really good and fat adapted to utilize fat for fuel and then the next day use just carbs for fuel. Um, I think it's very hard to go back and forth. And I think it's mainly very hard to be to allow your body to use fat as fuel when you're consuming carbs on a regular basis because carbs are always going to be easy to use as fuel. Your body, that's your body's primary fuel source no matter what. I don't care what anybody says. Science has proven it. But so I think if you were on a high fat diet and then you went to carbs, it would be easy to use that as fuel for your body. But coming back to the fat, it might be hard and you need more time. So metabolic flexibility is a tricky topic. I'm not a huge fan. Marcus has two more questions. So we're going to keep going on this one. Number two is, oh, I'm sorry. He had a little bit more. And or changing between different fasted and feasted training. I don't think there's a big deal there. Like I said, glycogen is stored for so long that you could do both. If you feel great training fasted, go for it. Um, If the next day you train in the afternoon, you're fed. I don't think it matters as much. I think the important thing to do is kind of look at your biofeedback and and journal like – 
How do you feel when you're fasted? How do you feel when you're fed? Okay, go with that more often because that's going to be more optimal for you personally. Question number two was personal experiences with uncommon training systems like fortitude training, Scott Stevenson, or blood flow restriction training. I have never done fortitude training. Um, I haven't even heard of it. I haven't seen it. I haven't looked it up. Um, I don't read these questions before I go. I just do them right off the top of the dome. So I apologize. I should have done my studying, but I haven't, I haven't done it. So my experiences with uncommon training systems are that they are fads. I think that there's a lot of things that come out that it's like, oh shit, this is the new training system that's going to work so great. But at the end of the day, like why is it so special, right? Like I think that there's a reason why like Westside Barbell is so smart and why conjugate method works. There's a reason why the juggernaut method works. There's a reason why like specific volumes for bodybuilding style training just work. Upper lower splits just work. Full body routines just work, right? There's there's certain things that are out there that have stood the test of time and they're always going to be around. And I think that these the, the only programs that are like uncommon or new or fads are going to be the ones that use those principles. Like I'm coming out with a training program very soon um, and it's going to be ebook uh, ready to launch. I'm going to have a female version and a male version and I'm super, super pumped about it. But it follows the philosophy of so many different people that I've studied over the years like Dr. John Russin, uh, Louis uh, in Westside and, and uh, Joe DeFranco and he has like the Westside for Skinny Bastards where it's still like that conjugate method but he changes the speed day, the dynamic day a little bit. Um, different people like that, right? Like we implement those philosophies that are going to be around for the rest of your life and then for the rest of time essentially and then we integrate our own style behind our own training, our own exercise selection, our own tempos, our own uh, our own philosophies, and then we kind of ingrate it to what we want it to be. And that's how mine is going to be. I take all these philosophies from the other people and then I throw my twist on it. But it's not a new uncommon fad or something. So most of the time I think they're they're not worth getting into. I think the a lot of times the simple stuff works the best. Uh, blood flow restriction training, I love it. I think it's I think it's great. I think it's you got to be careful with it because if you if you restrict too tight, you can cause issues with your blood. But um, it it provides a killer pump. It's kind of like it's almost painful. It's such a big pump, but um, I think it's really beneficial for joint health. I think if you want to grow your arms or your legs, because that's really all you can do is grow your limbs. I think it's a great way to add extra volume in. Get the sarcoplasmic pump. Get that um, higher range, that lactic threshold up. Um, and work that style of hypertrophy because that's its own demon. Um, you can do it a lot easier with a lot lighter load. So instead of me having to do 20 rep squats with a heavy weight to get that burn, I can do it with extremely light weight and still get that same effect while saving my low back, saving my joints. Um, they've also done it for a lot of injury rehabilitation because of this effect. Like you can bring blood flow to the right areas to enhance a muscle to support that joint better. So I think blood flow restriction is great. I think that with lactic acid-based training, pump-based training like that, your body can adapt and get used to it. So if you do if you do uh, blood flow restriction training at the end of every session, your body's going to stop adapting to it. Your body's going to get too good at it. And it's just not going to be that great. What I would suggest is doing it like once or twice a week um, and then every four weeks cutting it out completely. So maybe even three times a week and you're doing different rep ranges, but ideally you're doing it twice a week and it's maybe like a Tuesday and a Friday. So it's pretty spread out. And then after four weeks, you take it out completely for one, two, maybe even three weeks. And then you enter it back in. So you give your body a chance to reaccumulate to that, that uh, effect, right? So I, I don't want you to get too adapted to it, but I think it's great. And I think it's safe and I think it's healthy if you do it right. Thoughts on metabolic conditioning workouts on your off days. 
And he got a lot of good questions in here. So thoughts on metabolic conditioning workouts on your off days. I actually just did a post on this. I think that you should do metabolic conditioning at the end of your strength days if you're going to do them. Or it should be dedicated to its own day and you should reduce the amount of strength you're doing. We need to remember something that metabolic conditioning, metcons, are high-intensity interval training. That's all it is, right? It's a, it's a high-intensity modality, which means it's very demanding on your central nervous system. And it's going to elicit a certain type of metabolic, fat-burning, whatever you want to call it, effect. The issue here is if we do strength training, so if we're doing strength training, we're doing hypertrophy training where we're doing a lot of weightlifting, that is still high intensity on your central nervous system and on your metabolism. So we're almost using the same exact modality twice in different ways. So if we do strength, metabolic conditioning, strength, metabolic conditioning, strength, metabolic conditioning, take a rest day, that means six days out of the week, if you're training six days a week, is all in a high-intensity modality, and two things are going to happen. One, your body will adapt, so you're doing too much of one level of intensity, and you're not doing any of the other, which is low or moderate. Um, the second thing is going to happen is your adrenal glands are going to burn out. This is why so many CrossFit people have HPA access dysfunction, which is essentially adrenal fatigue. Um, that's the scientific term. That's why so many people who just train balls to the wall all the time get that adrenal fatigue and that's why we have to like i have so many clients that have been overtraining and underfeeding that i have to increase calories and reduce the amount of training they're doing and then they lose body fat and, and improve their performance because they're just going too hard too all, all the time and i think that's what's going to happen with doing too much metabolic conditioning and that's exactly what happened to me i was lifting three or four days a week and on every off day i was doing metabolic conditioning because i thought more intensity was better right i wanted sweat i wanted burn i wanted to be in like this grueling fashion of conditioning and it was fun and it was an intense and I might have stepped up my conditioning a little bit, but at the same time, I just burned myself out and I wasn't getting any recovery. So what I would recommend to people is to actually add them at the end. So do your strength day. If you're doing three or four strength days a week, at the very end, add a circuit and EDT or just like basic intervals where you're doing 10 to 12 minutes of like nonstop Metcon style training. That's going to elicit that metabolic conditioning effect that you get from these Metcons CrossFit workouts, but you can couple it in your high-intensity days. That way, the next day, you can do low-intensity or just rest and let your central nervous system take a break, fully recover, and then allow the true adaptation phase to occur because we need to remember there's two things that happen when we train. Stress and adaptation. Stress is all the training we do. It's work. It's, it's, it's everything that stresses our body out, whether it's our muscles, our bones, our hormonal system, brain, doesn't matter. Stress is stress. Adaptation is recovery. That's nutrition. That's a float tank. That's massage. That's sleep. And a lot of times we neglect those things. If we're doing training and metabolic conditioning every day of the week and we're not sleeping enough or eating enough, especially, but even if we are, too much of that is going to cause too much uh, central nervous system fatigue. You're going to burn out. Um, you're not going to get results, period. And I've seen better fat loss results when you're using both modalities because it takes your body longer to adapt to either one of those modalities. So if you're doing low-intensity cardio all the time, your body will adapt and stop being so good or it'll become better at it. It'll become more efficient and therefore you'll burn less calories because if we look at cardio – we want to be less efficient at it because less efficient means we need to utilize more energy, which is just calories, to get it done. Um, so my suggestion is to couple your Metcons at the end of your workouts and then have two or three low-intensity cardio days. It's good for your body. You'll burn more calories. Your body will utilize those low-intensity days better than if you were doing all low-intensity. And it'll utilize the high-intensity days better than if you were doing all high-intensity. So that's my opinion on metabolic conditioning. All right. Let's keep it moving. I feel like I just spit some fire on that one. I don't know why, but 
Marcus, you got me fired up on those questions, man. They were good questions, though. Let me uh, go kind of deep into those things. All right. Sarah King wants to know how to have conversations with clients while training them without getting off track or away from the workout. I was listening to the Vigor Life podcast about how important conversations are and was wondering your strategy for building relationships with clients while having a product, a productive training session with them. So this was a, that's a good question. Um, shit, when I was, especially when I was training at Vigor, I, I mean, I loved all my clients at Vigor so much. Um, some of them were with me. I had clients for four years and, uh, they're like family. You know what I mean? Like you grow relationships with these people and it's hard to, uh, it's hard to like, and that's honestly why I love online training. Cause I love my clients online, just like family too. And we talk on the phone, we talk on email and I can talk all day because, and they get like pages, emails from me because I'll explain everything. I'll talk to them. I'll see how they're doing because I believe that communication and making relationships is super important. So what I would suggest to people who have clients and you don't want to cut into their training time is figure out ways to kind of do both. When they're walking from one exercise to another, talk about it. Don't stress so much about the, the rest period because at the end of the day, it's more important to hold and build that relationship more and more. And we got to remember that when we look at the hierarchy of importance of like training, rest periods are way at the end. Like you can take 30 seconds or a minute and it's not going to make a difference, right? It, it might be better to take a minute because you'll be able to lift more weight on that next set. So don't stress so much about the rest periods. Get some words in there. Get some talking in there. Now, if they're doing again, like uh, like I covered on the last question metabolic conditioning and they're like the pace is non-stop like yeah you should probably like zip your lips a little bit and let them work and push them um and then talk to them after so i always like talking to clients when they're rolling or warming up come over see how they've been see what's new talk to them a little bit get them into the workout um in between rounds in between sets or in between supersets so if they get done with 1a 1b and we're moving on to 2a 2b i might talk to them a little bit again um i bounce i used to bounce around from client to client because I never really had just one client at a time. Um, and then after the workout, talk to them again, like holler at them. And then my big thing has always been like, I am a coach. I'm not a trainer. So I am available outside the gym. So even when I wasn't doing just online coaching, like when I worked with a lot of clients in person, they knew that they could hit me up outside the gym. They could shoot me a text or an email and we would talk, right? Like I want my clients to know that they can shoot me an email any day of the week and we'll have a conversation. We'll talk and, and I'm there for them. Um, sometimes I get sucked into my emails for too long because I want to be there so bad. And I think that communication and client relationship is so key. And that's why a lot of my clients are so successful is because we're real, we're honest, and we have high communication. So I would say if you're training clients in person a lot, let them know that you're available outside the gym for advice if they just want to talk, so on and so forth. Like I still have a few cl- high-level clients that I work with today in person. Um, I don't do a ton of in-person and training and those people know that they can hit me up anytime any day and I'm there for them I'm going to help them out so I think that's very important just to keep that window open and let them know that they can they can reach out to you another one my client is battling Lyme's disease and RA she is under eating but eating a strict paleo diet as prescribed by her doctor what would your best advice be on how to take her nutrition and diet would you avoid intense training slash HIT training and or cardio for her so I'm not going to – I believe she's talking about rheumatoid arthritis with the RA. I'm not going to dig into too many specifics because at the end of the day, like I'm not a a, a registered – I'm not an RD. I'm not a registered dietitian. I'm not a doctor and I don't feel comfortable like going down the rabbit hole of these specific topics. But what I would say to you is if she's under eating, 
So there's two things. I think paleo is great when you have any type of disease or autoimmune issue because it eliminates so many foods that could cause negative effects or intolerances or allergies or anything. But at the same time, it is a really easy way to undereat drastically. I see a lot of people who undereat because they're doing paleo. So what I would say for anybody who's struggling with any hormonal issue or any autoimmune issue and it's caused by undereating, I would suggest I mean, it's pretty hard. I would suggest following a macronutrient-based plan so you can actually increase your calories and have numbers to shoot for. You get that budget system going. You can really develop and, and shoot for numbers on a daily basis, right? Like it's easier to do that. But at the same time, if you have an autoimmune disease, you have to follow that strict paleo. But I would suggest doing an elimination diet so you can take things out and then slowly add things back in so you know what you can and can't have. Um, with training, I would take it day by day. I would talk to a doctor and I would be in touch with a doctor. One, that's going to build big, good rapport with your client to let them know that you care and you'll go the extra mile to make sure that they're safe and healthy. But then on top of that, you will know what you can do, how far you can push, how hard you can push, so on and so forth to make sure that they either are in the right area or they're not. They're going too hard. So that's on you to talk to the doctor and figure out to the, to the ninth degree. So um, that's about all I can give on that. All right, RD Fitness Nutrition. Sorry, RD underscore Fitness Nutrition on Instagram. What is your experience personally with adrenal fatigue? Did you need a coach to help you out? Oh, I'm sorry. Did you need a coach to help pull you out of it? I really, really like this question because I think that adrenal fatigue is like a really big topic now, right? Like for a long time, doctors tried to ignore adrenal fatigue and they said it wasn't anything. And then they came out with this thing called HPA axis dysfunction, which if you look at like the symptoms and the diagnosis and everything around it, it's the exact same thing as adrenal fatigue. They just didn't want to call it that for some reason. Don't know why they say that adrenal fatigue is not a thing, but it is. So anyway, um, I've never personally been diagnosed with adrenal fatigue. I don't know if I've ever actually had adrenal fatigue. I also believe that, and this sounds a little batshit crazy now that I'm going to say it out loud, but I believe that my mind will, my mind is so stubborn and so focused that I think I would be, I wouldn't even be consciously aware that I'm actually in adrenal fatigue because I've been in a state where a lot of the signs associated with adrenal fatigue were starting to occur um, and I would just kind of keep pushing and keep pushing and keep pushing because my mindset would just tell me to do so and I think a lot of people go through that. Um, what I did to avoid that is the same thing I do with clients. I hired a coach and the coach was just smart with my training program, smart with my nutrition and I found that I naturally stopped feeling that way. But it wasn't because I reached out to someone and said, hey, I'm, I am experiencing some adrenal fatigue symptoms. Like, can you help me? It was literally like, all right, this is what we're gonna do, Cody. We're gonna follow these macronutrients, which is a little bit of increase on your carbs, but you need more carbs. Uh, we're gonna tone down your training a little bit and we're gonna actually implement some low intensity cardio because I think you'll lose a little bit more body fat doing so. Um, versus high intensity all the time. And we're going to make sure you sleep in seven, eight hours a night. I want you to track your sleep. Once I started doing those things, I wasn't like, oh, I'm going to I'm gonna fight against adrenal fatigue. I was just listening to what the hell the coach said. And because of that, I felt way better. I lost more body fat. I built more muscle. I, sex drive went up. Metabolism went up. Testosterone went up. Everything went up, right? So that's my experience personally. Now, I've, I've worked with a lot of people that I believe are tiptoeing on the fence of adrenal fatigue. Um, I would say like one of my clients specifically who is a CrossFit athlete competitor, I think she might have been in it um, and we just didn't diagnose it as that. But she had all the symptoms, right? Like too much stress, um, stuck at her body fat level, not reducing any body fat, not building more muscle. Her PRs were starting to be non-existent in the gym. And a lot of that was due to under eating. So 
Adrenal fatigue can kind of come from anything. It can come from too much work stress. It can come from uh, overtraining too much and not recovering enough, not sleeping enough, under eating calories, uh, under eating specific macros, um, dysfunctional thyroid. Uh, it can come from so many different things. Um, I think it's important to become aware. Anybody who's experiencing adrenal fatigue, I just think you need a coach. It's too hard to pull yourself out of adrenal fatigue because we're stubborn, right? We're doing what we're doing for a reason. We're doing what we're doing because we believe that it's going to work. So it's hard to tell somebody like, hey, you need to stop training so hard because you're running yourself down. They're going to be like, dude, I'm cool. Like I'm not running myself down. But they'll give advice to others to not do that, right? And I know all the coaches listening can can live with that. And that's why I have a nutrition coach. Shout out to Brandy from IN3. Like I hired her because I wasn't paying attention to my macros nearly the way I was paying attention to all my other clients. Like I wasn't consuming enough fats. I was forgetting to track. I wasn't really recording my sleep and my habits because I was focused on my business. I was focused on my clients. And more than that, I was focused on my fiance and the baby that we have on the way, getting this house. I've had so much stress that... I just neglected my own and I needed that and that helped me tremendously. Again, same thing I did in the past when I started experiencing it is like just finding a coach and, and you do what the coach says and you get better results. Um, so that's my personal opinion. Um, but I think overall, like did you need a coach to help pull you out of it? Absolutely I did. I don't think I was in full-blown adrenal fatigue but I think I was dancing with it and I think I was headed down that path and I think the only reason I avoided it completely was because I hired a coach and they gave me the right protocol, enough calories, they made me focus on tracking macros, they made me focus on recording my biofeedback and they started making me do everything that I do for my clients, right? It's easier said than done. Um, so I absolutely think anybody who's experiencing uh, low energy, low sex drive, low metabolism, uh, dysfunctional thyroid, um, they're not experiencing any more gains or PRs in the gym, they can't break through this plateau, whether that's fat loss, performance, muscle gain, whatever it may be, I do believe you need a coach. Um, and I need you, think you need to believe uh, – I believe you need a coach in order to vent to somebody, to report to somebody, to be accountable to somebody, and to have realistic guidelines along what you should actually be doing versus what you think you should be doing. So that's my motherfucking opinion. All right. I got cotton mouth screaming at this mic. I got to drink my coffee a little bit. Life, Life as Alba. All right. Life as Alba from Instagram wants to know, could you discuss or give advice for those trying to gain weight versus losing weight? I just feel like I've read so many different things that I'd like to know what is true and what wouldn't make a difference. For example, I read you should drink more calories. But then again, I've also read it's better to eat your calories over drinking them. Same goes for cardio. I've heard you should do it and then others say you shouldn't do it when you're trying to gain weight. What's the right way to go? So, um... My advice to anybody trying to gain weight is, number one, gain weight as slowly as possible. Anytime you're gaining weight too fast, you are more than likely going to be adding too much body fat to your your body. The more body fat you add, the poorer your hormonal uh, system is going to be. The more uh, testosterone is going to drop, cortisol is going to rise, your metabolism is going to slow down, insulin sensitivity is going to be worse, blood sugar levels are going to be skewed, and all these things cause more fat gain. So it's kind of this vicious cycle of like, it's a snowball effect, right? Like as you start to add a little bit of fat, it becomes easier for your body to add more and more. So the key to gaining weight, like they used to say like, add 500 calories to your diet a day. 
Wrong. I would literally, so if you're an advanced trainee, I would add 50 calories a day over maintenance. If you are like an intermediate, 100 to 200. And if you're a newbie and you've like never trained before and you're going all in on this, I would probably say like 250 to 400 tops. And 400 to 500 being like somebody is like a genetic freak who literally cannot gain weight no matter what they do. And even then, if you add 400, 500 calories and you're not gaining weight, well, you're not really adding calories over your maintenance. You're just adding calories to what you're doing right now. Um, So my advice is to keep it low. Keep it minimal. Um, I would say add your – when you're when you're doing a weight gain, I would add your extra calories from carbohydrates. You should probably be having like – 0.8 0.8 grams per pound of body weight because when you have extra carbs in order to gain weight, carbs can be a supplemental protein in the sense that your body needs less protein if you have carbs. Carbs are a protein-sparing nutrient, they call it, which basically means like if I have more carbs on my diet, they will take replace and do the job that protein was supposed to do a little bit, not completely, but somewhat. And therefore, you can cut protein down to about grams per pound of body weight. Now, if you just like protein and you want to have one gram per pound, that's totally fine too, but I wouldn't go over that. I would keep your fats a little bit lower, about 20% of your diet, because I never think you should be going below 20% of your calories from fats because you need them hormonally. Uh, But if you're adding calories, you should add a calorie that is going to be utilized to build muscle and to perform and have more energy. And carbohydrates are going to be the best source of that. So you shouldn't add a bunch of calories and fats. Get the amount of fats you need to be physically able and hormonally operating at the highest level and then add calories through carbohydrates and do it slowly. Add 50 calories a week until you start to bump the scale up a little bit. But again, I think as an advanced person, if I could gain half a pound of muscle per month, I would be over the top of the world. A lot of people strive for like 0.2 pounds of muscle per month that are advanced because you can't just keep building muscle forever. It's a slow process. And on top of that, like let's say let's say you take four months to add a pound of muscle. Well, a pound of muscle, let's take – and I heard Jason Frugia say this way back on a podcast. Like I'm talking years ago and ever since then, I've always used it as an example. Take a one-pound steak, slice it up into a bunch of slices and then put slices on your bicep, your tricep, your quad, your hamstring, your calf, your glutes, your chest, your back, your shoulders – By the time you get done with this one pound, you look way fucking bigger. And it was only one pound of muscle, right? So that could possibly be an exaggeration, but it's a good example of like, you know what? One pound of muscle is actually a lot, especially if you're not adding fat. And I don't know about you, but I would rather add a half a pound of muscle with no fat than I would one pound of muscle with one pound of fat because – you're going to drop a half a pound of muscle trying to remove that pound of fat if you do things the way they used to do it where you're like bulking, cutting, bulking, cutting, bulking, cutting. It's just – it's not good for your blood sugar. It's not good for your insulin. It's not good for your hormones. It's not good for your body period because the more you go through those cycles of cutting and gaining, cutting and gaining, the harder it is to remove that fat, right? Like the more we add fat and remove it, add fat and remove it, the harder it becomes, the more resilient that those fat cells actually become on your body to be removed, So what you should be doing is focusing on very, very slow gaining for a long process. Now, my advice to you is, again, the best advice is I wouldn't drink your calories much. I mean, the only way I would drink it is if you're doing really, really intense workouts, you can have a a carb-protein shake, like a two or three-to-one ratio of carbs to protein post-workout. That could be your extra calories. Those are going to go right to muscle. Other than that, I would get all your calories from real whole foods. No matter what, add some extra rice, add some extra sweet potato, you're done. Uh, Very simple, but you're adding a little bit of calories on top of your maintenance. I feel like this is a really good Q&A. Not to uh, toot my own horn, 
But I'm actually tooting your guys' horn. You guys are uh, throwing out some really, really good questions today. I'm pumped about it. I love Q&As. I, I literally love Q&As. You know what, guys? If you love Q&As as much as I love Q&As, keep sending me awesome questions. And please do me a favor and share this podcast with your friend, uh, any friend, on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, on email, text. Send this to somebody because... Like I'm, I've been so pumped up lately because it's growing very, very fast. Uh, the podcast is like every week it's growing. Every week we're getting more and more subscribers, and I could not be happier because it's a movement, and this movement is to get out free content. And people, some people think I'm crazy, but I am literally investing so much time and money to just give more free content away because I love helping people, and I love creating impact, and I love creating a movement. And it's my job on this world, I feel like, to just help people and to just give more. And I know that like when I was growing up and I was overweight and I was uh, like, let's see, like I think I really started trying to kind of think about fitness when I was 18 is when it really clicked and that's and then 19 was when I had my big transformation I believe um, or no it was actually 17 I started thinking about it 18 I had my big transformation 19 I was full-blown in it but during that entire time uh, actually up until I was like 21 probably I could not afford a coach I couldn't afford a trainer I couldn't afford any other gym besides LA fitness for 30 bucks a month and because of that I lived on T nation on bodybuilding.com on uh Nate Green experience. He had a really big website back then. Jay Ferrugia used to post a lot of blogs back in the day. Um, I lived on these guys' sites. And those free articles are what created inspiration for me. It's what created the first transformation for me. It's what created like the drive to just keep pushing. And every day I would soak this knowledge up. So it's always been my dream to be able to pay that forward and to do that more. And that means writing free blogs. It means writing, doing two Instagram posts a day to make sure people are getting good information. It means recording these podcasts. And what you can do to help me is to share this. If you can share these podcasts, it grows and that's the movement. That's the goal. That's that's what 2018 focus is. It's the movement. All right. Let's get to the next question. This question is from More Chai Please. She likes chai tea or chai coffee or chai whatever, or maybe it's chia. Maybe it's chia seeds. I don't know. C-H-I-A something from Instagram. Your info has helped me so much throughout my process of trying to gain uh, some muscle. Well, thank you. I love getting messages from people who shout out. Like I had a person the other day that has lost like uh, almost 100 pounds. And they said like literally all they do is follow my podcast, follow my Instagram post. And they just implement what, I, what I've been guiding them on. And it's allowed them to help them lose almost 100 pounds, which was like the best news I've ever heard. I was so pumped about it. So your info has helped me so much throughout my process of trying to gain some muscle. I am terrified to do it, though... As I come from a history of anorexia and I still believe I overtrain, dot, 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 and don't eat what I should for gaining muscle. I'm just scared. Is there any advice for fear? Overcoming seeing the scale go up. How to embrace reverse dieting. Huh. I think I had this conversation with two different clients today, which is funny. I was on a Skype call with one of my clients um, in South America and uh, same thing, like, we're in the process of reverse dieting because we knew hormonally she wasn't in a good place. Like she was under eating and it's hard to do that. Like it was hard for me. I remember there was a point, no shit, where when I first started trying to diet and this is what media may believe, I was on a 500 calorie a day diet. So bad. And the reason I was on it is because I read an article in a magazine that said, take this supplement, eat 500 calories a day, you'll lose weight. And I did lose weight, but I felt like shit. My hormones started crashing and I actually gained all the weight back as soon as I stopped doing the diet. 
So it was pointless, but it, it really fucked my head. And then after that, it was hard for me to even eat close to as many calories as I wanted to or that I needed to because I was afraid of adding fat. So what I would say to you is go back and listen to my my previous question about gaining weight. That should be your, your goal. Slowly reverse diet anywhere between 50 to 100 calories per, per day. Like do that week after week after week until you get to your maintenance and you're at your current body level, fat level still. Sometimes you only make an adjustment once every two or three weeks. That's fine. Slowly reverse diet up until you're at a body fat level that you are comfortable with and you're at a higher level calories. Once you hit that maintenance level calories, literally add 50 to 100 calories of carbs per day and you will slowly gain weight. Good weight, muscle, and make sure you're training right. If you're not strength training and training properly, you're not going to build muscle because you need to elicit that stress. You need to elicit the change before the change can happen. So training is really uh, hard or really important. But as far as advice for fear, like I think there's a couple things. One, like I told my client today, like I said, hey, remember the first time we bumped up your calories? We added like 400 calories that first week because you were so low, we just needed to make an aggressive approach. I was like, what happened the three weeks after that? They're like, well, I actually lost a pound and a half of fat. And I'm like, okay, well, don't you think that says something? Maybe it'll happen again. And then I said, what's the worst if it didn't? Like, like worst case scenario, what, what would happen? She's like, well, worst case scenario, I gain a pound or so. And I'm like, okay, and, and that's a, a week or two with an extra pound of fat. Versus a life of being low calorie dieting. And right there, just it clicked for her. And she realized, like, I cannot live this way under eating. It's worth it. And then we're still going at a slow process rate. So, my advice for you to not fear is one, I would get a coach. Like, if you don't have a coach already, get a coach because a coach is gonna hold you accountable. A coach is gonna walk and talk you through these, these bumps in your diet, these, these uh, overcoming the scale. They're gonna talk you through the entire process, which is gonna help tremendously. Um, I, I cannot say enough about coaching, whether it is a nutrition coach or a training coach or a business coach or a personal development coach. I've had all of them and I continue to have multiple of them in my life for a reason. It's because of accountability and walking me through big changes and scary changes in my life. And that's the biggest key of coaching is, is having that communication, having that guidance. Um, so there's no tactic. I can't give you one tactic or advice to overcome the fear. I would just say embrace it because you know it's better. I would write down or consider all of the negative thoughts that would happen if you don't do that. If you don't increase calories so you stop under eating, what's going to happen? right? Or take the fucking scale away, right? Either one of those things, because if you write all the negatives um, of what will happen if you continue down the path you're currently on, that will be more than enough evidence for you in order to realize that you need to make a change. You need to eat more food. You need to reverse diet. And then the other thing is, if the scale's that big of a deal, remove it. I have a lot of reverse dieting clients that I completely remove the scale and we just focus on biofeedback. Every week we rank their biofeedback on their weekly assessment with me. We look at sleep, stress, hunger, cravings, mood, energy, performance, recovery. And if all those things are improving and your body composition is looking good, like you feel good, you look good, your clothes are fitting well, then you're good. Don't worry about the rest. So you might want to just completely get rid of the scale. More Chai Police had another question. She said... Also, I was wondering about your implementation of stretching post-workout with your clients. Just general thoughts or what to do or what you do. Um, I'm not a big stretcher. I think that uh, – I think – I encourage everybody to stretch your hip flexors daily, whether that's pre-workout, whether that's after your workout, whether that's at night. I think your glutes – so here we go. Your glutes, your lats, and your hip flexors are probably – in your pecs. Probably the three places <laughs> – four places, lats – 
what did I say? Lats, pecs, hip flexors, glutes. Those are the four places you should probably stretch the most because we know people's hips and shoulders are the tightest places on their body. And they're also the most immobile when they should be the most mobile because they're ball and socket joints. So I recommend everybody stretch those four areas more than anything. And I don't care if it's pre-workout, post-workout, later in the day. Um, if if po- post-workout makes sense because you can do it afterwards. Now, I'm not recommending it because it's going to like increase fat loss or increase performance. I'm recommending it it's because it's going to increase posture. It's going to improve your mobility. It's going to improve your movement patterns and how you feel. And I think that might have a, um, a simultaneous effect of how you perform later on. So I do recommend it. Um, but I don't, I don't really like, there's no real benefit. Like the only benefit of like directly to body composition or performance, um, would be intraset stretching, which is basically stretching the muscle you're working in between sets to elicit more breakdown. And when you elicit more uh, muscle tissue breakdown, they have to rebuild and replenish more tissue, which means you're going to build more muscle. So intraset stretching is a really good tactic to build more muscle. Other than that, I'm not a big stretcher. I would rather prioritize mobility. I'd rather prioritize nutrition, sleep, training, all those things first. If you're doing all those things, then we can talk about what you need to stretch. Uh, but in general, I think people should probably stretch their hip flexors, glutes, lats, and pecs. And I would probably do it first thing in the morning to wake you up, right? To get your day started in a better, better fashion. All right. Last but not least, my boy, Michael France. What are the best exercises with just body weight and a band? Something quick and effective you could get done in 20 to 30 minutes. Um, sorry, drink some more of my coffee. I finish a big-ass coffee every time I do these podcasts. Um, I would probably say – so this is what I've been doing lately in my garage gym. So I'm actually getting this shit set up. I got my parallettes out. I got my incline bench out now. I got my floor matting. Um, I haven't set up my pull-up bar TRX yet. I need to get that out soon. But I have bands. I have my dumbbells. So what I would do when I just have bands is I'm doing a lot of lateral band walks. So band around your ankles, knees, or just around the arches of your feet. And you're walking side to side in like a quarter squat position, really just like glute activity, um, a little bit of quad activity. I would be doing lateral band walks. I would be doing a lot of air squats. I would be doing a ton of unilateral work. So uh, whether that's static split squats, whether it's Bulgarian split squats, whether it's jumping lunges, side lunges, excuse me, walking lunges, forward lunges, reverse lunges. You can do 360 lunges where you go forward, side, reverse, reverse, side, forward. So your body's doing a full circle. Uh, Pistol squats are great whether you're doing it to a bench or to nothing. Um, Anything you can to just be doing more and more. I would also be doing uh, toe touches. So like RDLs, like single leg RDLs, reaching for the floor, reaching for your toes. You're sitting into that hamstring. Um, So that way you hit the hamstrings and glutes. There's all your lower bodies that you need. Um, For band exercises, I would be doing uh, banded push-ups, banded presses with single arm staggered position. I would be doing band pull-aparts like crazy, 3D pull-aparts. I would do band rows, hook it to something, or hook it underneath your feet, and you can do a band bent row. Um, I would do band curls because I love training my arms every chance I get. Um, and you could wrap all those up into a 20 to 30 minute workout easily. You can also do banded mountain climbers. You can do ab work with it. So what I would do is pretty simple. Like try to hit every muscle in your body. And the way you can do that is doing a hip hinge movement, whether that's single leg RDL, a toe touch, um, a glute bridge, frog pump, anything like that, hip thrust. Um, then you do some kind of knee down exercise, which I would recommend a unilateral or just a high rep squat. So you can do like 20 to 30 reps air squats, or you can do some kind of unilateral, which would be like a single leg movement. Then I would just make sure you do some kind of press because you're going to push something. That's another movement pattern you need to do. So you can do band push, you can do push ups, you can do banded push ups. Um, anything 
anything along those lines. You can even do like overhead presses with a band standing on it. Um, and then I would do some kind of pole. So your pole, I would do two of. So if you did like one knee dominant, one hip dominant, one push dominant, I would do two pole dominants and I would do like a band pull apart. So an upper back activation drill. And then I would do some kind of like rhomboid or lat work, which would just be any kind of row that you can, can do with a band. Um, Plain and simple. And then do something for your core, whether it's a sit-up, whether it's a plank, whether it's a side plank, whether it's a uh, pal-off press or lateral rotation drill, anything like that. So that's kind of where I would go with that, and I would just crank it up. So I would do like – you could do a 10-minute AMRAP and pick four of those exercises and then pick four more and do another 10-minute AMRAP. Either way, like you're just banging out as many of those as you can. 